One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One Aslan ring to rule them all. Lion. One the ring to lion. find them. The great lion. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. The wheel of time turns and ages come and Books from Earth, a podcast. Relive your favorite books of fantasy, sci-fi, and apocalyptic stories. Yes, there are lots of spoilers. The spoiling is constant. Yes, there can be adult content. We are adults making content. Spoilers, adult content, books from Earth. Time to relive a favorite book. Welcome to the Books from Earth podcast, episode 7, featuring the three-body problem. Originally written in Mandarin in 2006 and translated into English in 2014. Winner of the Hugo, the Galaxy Award. We are going hardcore sci-fi with this hit from China. Yes, we will be butchering in monotone fashion the pronunciation of names and places. Yes, we will express confusion over nutty math conundrums. Yes, we enjoyed the first installment in the Remembrance of Earth's Past Trilogy. Part detective novel, part historical fiction, holy sci-fi. This book sucked us in, and we can't wait to finish the trilogy. So hold on to your sofans and keep an eye on that countdown as we transport you and us to virtually relive The Three-Body Problem with Episode 7 of Books from Earth. I'm Josh, and I'm joined by my fellow Books from Earth podcasters, Lou. Hi, guys. Maureen. Hey, everybody. And Jack. Greetings, everyone. First, let's go back and revisit what this book is about. A lonely planet, Trisolaris, is located in the closest solar system to Earth. It's about 4.2 light years away. Trisolaris is having a rough time. It has three suns, and its orbit is wacky and unpredictable. The Trisolarians are sentient, dehydratable, and way ahead of humans in science and technology. After several hundred near-extinction events, each one resetting their culture's development, the Trisolarians discover that Trisolaris will eventually either be loosed out to space to die cold and sunless, or be consumed by its suns on the one day when all the suns line up in a row with Trisolaris. They are doomed. Fortunately for them, a dissident Chinese scientist sends Trisolaris a radio wave message revealing the Earth's location. The Trisolarians quickly decide that Earthlings are unworthy of the beautiful, predictably orbiting of its single sun, Earth. They launch two proton-sized supercomputers, a.k.a. SOFONS, that paralyze Earth's scientific progress in particle research, thus freezing Earth's ability to develop technology that could defeat the Trisolarians. The Trisolarians also launch some spaceships towards Earth, ETA, 450 years. Back on Earth, the bulk of our story takes place in China starting at the Cultural Revolution and going back and forth to modern-day China. Ya Wenjie is a scientist who advances the radio wave tech such that it can reach as far as Trisolaris, and she secretly sends a message into outer space. Eight years later, she is the one that receives the first contact message from Trisolaris. She ignores the advice of the Trisolarian who sends the message, which is to not transmit ever again because the Trisolarians will invade if they figure out where Earth is located. And instead, 
she invites the Trisolarians to Earth in hopes they will save Earth from all of its sufferings. All of this done in secret. Dasher is the police detective who, with the help of nanotech inventor Wang Miao, figures out that the Trisolarians have set up a fifth column on Earth called the Earth Trisolaris Organization, or ETO. Their work together starts with them investigating the sudden death of several notable scientists. Wang Miao infiltrates the ETO, mainly by making remarkable progress in a virtual reality video game called Three Body. The ETO designed the Three Body video game to recruit very smart people who could help develop a solution to the Three Body problem. Once in the ETO, Wang Miao discovers more about the ETO and leads Da Xiu and his forces to an ETO meeting. Yeah, Wenjia is the leader of the ETO, and she is captured. With information learned in capturing Ye Wenjia and help from U.S. and Chinese forces, they hatch a plan to use nanoblades to destroy the fifth column's roaming naval ship in such a way that any important information on board the ship will not be destroyed, namely messages between the ship's leader and the Trisolarians, messages that no one else has read, not even Ye Wenjia. The ship's leader is an ETO extremist who wants the Trisolarians to destroy the human race. They succeed in capturing the ship and discover the Trisolarians' rough plans for Earth. That is, to basically take over the Earth and probably wipe out humans. And that's Earth's particle science is also frozen, thanks to the Sophons. The story ends on a cliffhanger of what will the Earth do to respond? Jack. What do you think the Earth is going to do? Great question. Great question. First of all, great summary. I found the book to not be... Josh, you gave a little bit more of a linear summary than the actual reading of the book, which skips around in time, in solar systems, and you know, virtual reality and back to normal reality and you your your summary was great and um i almost wish i had heard your summary immediately after closing the book or like two two-thirds of the way through it would have helped me because I, this book was an effort i had to like really there was no letting your mind wander or you would get lost fortunately and i'm going to get to the answer to your question the book is interspersed with some exposition whether it's an interview of a character or you know um a long philosophical conversation between two smart people that help clear things up without blatant exposition i would have been like wow that was kind of an interesting book but i don't really know what happened so it helped me uh nice trail breadcrumbs by the author all right so to answer your question what do i think earth would do i think that we could see every man for themselves up here. Every kind, like, and it would be so much infighting. Like, the United States would, would want to team up with its close allies, you know, Great Britain, you know, uh, Israel and a couple other countries and Canada, you know, kind of the people you would expect and not get anything done, including the Democrats and the Republicans would fight and it would be just a political kickball game and nothing would ever happen and eventually the Trisolarians would just show up and it would be, we, we would have done too little too late. So 
very long answer with a long preamble, but that's what I think the Earth would do. Lou, what do you think I, Earth is going to do? I would hope that we would finally unite as a human race. But if you look at this book, and we know in the book, they know that they're, they're coming. And even the Trisolarians, even the humans who are for the Trisolarians, are split into three sections. Even they're split. And even they are fighting each other. So Jack might be right on this, you know. But my hope would be that we would all unite as a human race and see these these people as an enemy. Like, you know. Or well maybe they might not I mean they are an enemy, but if it was another alien race, you know. I would want us to at least unite. Jeez. Yeah, it's hard to say what bring humans together. Um, it just seems like it's in our nature to be divided and and figure out what's what's going on. I th- I am thinking about some other movie portrayals of apocalyptic movies where the Earth seemed to kind of come together, but even then there was always a sort of some people were being left out and some were were being left in. One movie I'm thinking about is I think it's called 2012 with John Cusick. And yeah, um, I saw that. And so, like, the something happened to the Earth's core, and countries were basically told, "Hey, Earth is Earth is in for some hard times." And they build in secret, they build these huge, massive ship slash submarine things. And it seemed to be an effort, a universal, I mean, a global effort to kind of create these ships that would be like arcs. And uh, but still, you had to be able to have money to buy a ticket for you to get selected. And I think as soon as you get in selecting people who would survive and not for those who would not survive. There's obviously going to be chaos, you know, so I, I don't know what the earth would do, except uh, it doesn't, I'd like to believe they'd all come together and do something great, but I'm skeptical. You know, what what kind of story is this? It's called hard science fiction. Why is it called hard science fiction, Maureen? So I think it's called hard science fiction because we have all of the technology. It's looking for advancement. It is basically like, it's entirely dependent on future technology that it hasn't happened yet, but is always possible. Like if you look at Ray Bradbury, he was writing in, I I forget if it was the fifties, the sixties, somewhere around there, 1900. Holy cow. Wow. I'm old. But you know, he wrote about stuff like Kleenexes and instant communication via via stuff like Skype. You know, all of that stuff eventually came to fruition. If you look at like Star Trek, the next generation, you know, they had the big, you know, on screen and, Like, we have all of that technology now. So hard science fiction to me is the stuff where you have just a little bit of advancement in where our current technological state is at. And then that gets used because we are facing some sort of even greater advancement that we cannot overcome with where we're at right now. And Jack, what did you like? What, what, What dynamic of this book did you like the most? The detective story? the historical fiction side or this hardcore sci-fi that Formula was just describing? I liked Dashi, the detective. He was my favorite character. Every time he was in a scene, I was pleased. So I'd have to go with the detective story. Hard How about you, Lou? Me too. Dashi was my favorite character. He's the only one that kind of made sense to me. <laughs> you know, I'm not a scientist. So he's the only guy that was like down to earth and practical, in my opinion, and not, you know, not in theory or testing anything, you know, but um, 
just down to earth guy. So as a detective story, I think yes. Historical fiction, you know, yes. Definitely, definitely a hard sci-fi. Maureen, that was a great description of hard sci-fi. You know, like Jack said in the beginning, I had a, I, I mean, it was like my head hurt in the beginning reading this book. And I was like, oh my God, am I going to get through this book in time? You know, and actually, I took your advice, Josh. You were like, you know, don't worry about the sci, the science. It's just like background noise, you know. <laughs> so that's why I look. I, I kind of just kind of read over the science parts. I was like, oh, but I, I, I latched onto the story. You know, I yeah. latched onto the story. Yeah, yeah. The, the science was not as fun as like a gadget, you know, a cool weapon that might shoot lasers, but also shoot you know, something else, like something in a John Scalzi book or something. The, the science fiction in this science fiction is like particle theory science fiction and harder stuff, some nanotech that was actually my favorite science fiction in the book, but quite, quite difficult to grasp. The, real science. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, that was all, that was my favorite part of the whole book. I was like pulling out my old vector calculus notes, looking up gravity assists. Like it was, I was, I was thrilled with the amount of math in the book but that's that's me <laughs> so if i were in the three body video game i would have been like in one of the very first visits to the video game where it's like we just listen to the king who has an intuition that's like that I would not have been <laughs> any of the other episodes where actual scientists were trying to figure out the problem um but um i i liked it you would have like you'd have been like the king's wrong everyone jump in the soup <laughs> <laughs> in the soup yeah, I remember the king was like, I guess I'm wrong about everything. He jumped in the suit. I was like, what is going on with this book, man? <laughs> and I was actually, I was a little bit disappointed because, like, I was like, by the time we're getting into the video game and we get to the second place where it's got the three stars and the three stars always meet cold season, I was like, oh, that's why they named it Three Body Problem. I didn't get to guess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah so I had no I idea. Know. I thought it was aliens that had three bodies. Yeah. No. Nah. I, I thought it I thought it might be like one mind, three bodies type situation. Um, and now that I've read it, I feel stupid about that. <laughs> <laughs> you're like you're like one one Google search away from understanding what the three body problems <laughs> You know, and not spoiling the book either. But just to know what it is. Uh I don't know. Maybe this is not to direct the conversation but maybe it's a good time to say what the three body problem is maureen okay <laughs> <laughs> but you you did brag about your math skills earlier so. oh, yeah you did you no did. for those of you listening who were not on the pre-call maureen was just talking such a big game so <laughs> no no game down, it's like, i couldn't get the calculus these get degrees guys these get degrees <laughs> <laughs> So the three-body problem is basically trying to track how three separate masses will move in space if they're within each other's gravity fields. So the easiest way to think about it is like if you've ever been on mission space at Disney World, they talk about using using a slingshot to the moon to get you to Mars, where they shoot you at the moon and the gravity of Mar uh, the gravity of the moon will pull you around and put you in the direction of Mars. So the three-body problem, picture that, 
but with like three giant suns in space. And every time one sun comes nearer the other, the gravity of them, they, it pulls them toward each other and they turn just a little bit. So then when like the third, the second and the third one encounter each other, the gravity pulls them toward each other and they turn just a little bit. And it can be solved mathematically. I don't think a um, hard solution for it has been found. I think a summation or a series has been found, but nothing where you can just like drop, you know, speeds and masses in there and get the thing. But when you say math, when you say mathematical solution, you mean being able able to predict what the masses will do. Like a general, like, yeah, like a generalized formula where you don't need the parameters. You don't need the size of the mass. You don't need the speed of the mass. You can have like a general formula where it's like, okay, we can plug this in. And for any given set of, you know, whatever the size and speed of anything is, we can always figure out what their orbits are. I don't think that has been arrived at yet. But if I, if I recall correctly, which I may not, there is a summation right now that is out there that can do the three body in a general way. Right. So imagine if you were on a planet that was orbiting about those three suns and getting whipped around like crazy. You that mean Proxima Centauri B? That's what I loved most about this book is I was like on a tear. I'm like, oh my God, let me look this up. Let me look this up. Let me look this up. And there, they did discover a planet in 2016 that is in Alpha Centauri, and Alpha Centauri is a tri-solar system, Proxima Centauri, that is on the very tiny planet that's um, most susceptible to the gravitational pulls. Proxima Centauri B, uh, I don't remember whether it's A or B, but Proxima Centauri B is a planet that is in that tri-solar orbit. Very cool. So, sorry, Jack, continue. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. That's where I wanted you to go. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You nailed it. So, and that's the other part that I love about science fiction is it's like, you never really know, is this fake or are we about to like discover some sort of trisolarans? Because the other thing about Proxima Centauri B is that it is in the habitable habitable zone of Proxima Centauri, which is so cool. Just to give a quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Cradle Tongue. Uh, If we do discover life there, if you subscribe to Cradle Tongue. You could speak with those people. Just a shameless plug for one of our sponsors. <laughs> Lou. Yes. Do you have a favorite passage to share with us? I do. <clears throat> when I was reading this, this kind of stuck out at me. It's the pharma hypothesis. The pharma hypothesis, on the other hand, has the flavor of a horror story. Every morning on a turkey farm, the farmer comes, comes to feed the turkeys. A science, a scientist turkey, having observed this pattern to hold without change for almost a year, makes the following discovery. Every morning at 11, food arrives. On the morning of Thanksgiving, the scientist announced this law to the other turkeys. But the morning at 11, food doesn't arrive. Instead, the farmer comes and kills the entire flock. Wang felt the road beneath his feet shift like quicksand. The A-shaped building seemed to wobble and sway. He quickly brought his gaze back to the street. And that was the, that was basically the scene. And let me know if I'm wrong here, where Wang is just learning about everything, you know, about the messed up science, you know, how the, how the science is 
what are the Maureen help me here? What are those tests? So far, are actually working in the um, you know, the protons in the Earth, you know, and how it's messing everything up, basically. And he is going nuts, and he's like, "Oh my God!" And start, he starts thinking about the farm, you know, this this the farmer hypothesis. The scientist who's like, you know, this yeah. turkey scientist, you know. We, th- we think we're safe, but we're actually doomed. Yes. <laughs> we figured everything out, but we haven't. Fair enough. And that's the that's the sense of the whole book, that we don't know what's going on. And, you know, some themes. Your passage brings up some themes. One of the themes that uh, came to me, came to mind for me was, you know, human nature in when faced with an extinct extinction events and we don't go around in our daily lives thinking that we could be facing an extinction event and there's movies at least at least most people don't (laughs) 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 or the background almost everybody is so human nature and extinction events is you know one thing is going to be despair right people are going to be despairing people are going to be this is the last day of my life so i'm going to live it like it's the last day of my life this book raises the question. Um, it doesn't, I don't think it really begins to answer it yet, but this is a trilogy. And I think that at the end of the book, uh, it is made public that something's happening in the last message that the Trisolarians send to all humans on the planet using the Sophon visual display capability. It says, you are bugged. So that's Trisolarians' view of humans. And uh, here they come. What are some other things? So was that was hold on. The you are bugs thing. Explain how that occurred. I am living in two thousand sixteen or whatever and I'm driving to work. Do I see it in the sky? Do I see it on my computer screen? Where am I seeing this you are bugs thing? Yeah, so somehow the Trisolarians developed this Sophon technology back on their home planet. We got a chapter on it in the book. Where basically they, they are capable, they are capable of making multi-dimensional objects and building them into super, super duper computers and then shrinking them down to the size of a proton. Butchered the science there, but that's the gist of it. And the Trisolarians sent these two protons to Earth and they arrived at Earth very quickly and immediately had multi-capabilities. The Sophons basically could travel around the globe. It, almost instantaneously, they could infiltrate the minds of humans and suggest things. They definitely messed up all the particle accelerator testing so that the science on Earth was stalled. Somehow these sophons could project images on the inside of people's visions. So it would almost be like I have a virtual reality headset on or something, and in my vision would come these messages that the trisolarians would want me to see. And the last message that the Trisolarian sent, according to the end of this book, is a two-second message that flashed into everybody's eyes, and it's your bugs, with an exclamation point. Okay. One more question about this, about Sophon's powers. The countdown that was seen in the pictures was not seen in pictures taken from another camera, only by Wang's camera. How does that, how do you explain that? Can I take it? Please. So the. (laughs) So the Trisolarans basically built a living 
computer that was capable of thinking and acting at the speed of light. And that's what those SOFONs are. So what happened with that countdown was the the SOFON was targeting uh, Wang Scientist. and Mao. Yes. No, no, no. Just Wang. And so what would happen is in the moment, he would be taking a picture and the SOFON would be, um, it said it could pass through film. So the SOFON would put the countdown on the film and he would be taking a picture with the digital camera and he would put, and the SOFON would put the countdown on the digital camera. But as soon as he passed it to his wife, as soon as he passed it to his kid, the SOFON was like literally toying with him. So not only is it this like... Supercomputer that can think and act at the speed of light. It's also kind of a jackass. <laughs> it was beautiful. Very good. Very good. That's it, the, the sofons are were one of the technologies that kind of were kind of mind blowing. They also make the trisolarian seem super advanced, like the human race has absolutely no chance against them. But of course, our favorite Dasha brings up the fact that humans have been trying to destroy bugs since humans discovered bugs. And so far, humans have failed. And that the technology gap between bugs and humans is obviously insurmountable. And so he sparks this little bit of hope that maybe there's a way that for us as readers that we're supposed to believe now that maybe humans can survive this trisolarian event, whatever it's going to be. Any other themes? I got one. I don't know if it's a theme or not, but the main protagonist, Ye Wenjie, was a young adult during the very, very turbulent time in China witnessed her father's murder by a mob with her mother and sister egging the mob on and was then categorized as someone who was a betrayal of the of the cause and was like banished she also happened to be a brilliant scientist and was the first to make contact with the trisolarians she was full of despair and nihilism when she communicated with them so I guess the theme would be don't do stuff and make decisions when you're feeling fatalistic. I don't know if that's really a theme, but fatalism was, you know, could be the downfall of the human race. And the author, I think, is making a commentary on the cultural revolution, which is, you know, kind of the toxic soil from which her life grew. Yeah, that was a heavy introduction to the human race with these scenes from the cultural revolution. And yeah, Winge's sort of reaction to it and, you know, being up there on the, the Red Coast base and eventually convincing her that she should ignore the Trisolarian's message to not reach back out to the universe again because if the Trisolarians discover Earth, they're going to come there and it could be a problem. And she was like, you know, the Earth is a problem and aliens need to come here. That's how, this is how bad it is. We need an alien race to come and bail us out. Um, and that, that grew out of seeing her father murdered on stage by high schoolers. Yeah, the theme is cultural revolution was really, really bad. It was so bad. And we've had nothing like that and, that I can think of um, in U- U.S. history. Native Americans would probably disagree with me, but and, and so would survivors of slavery. But we haven't had that type of mob mentality take over an entire society, and I just can't even imagine what that's like. Me either, and to the tunes of millions and millions of people. Yeah, I wonder why we don't hear about it as much. I mean, I, at least I didn't. I mean, I hear, of course, about the Holocaust, World War II, yes, Native Americans, yes, um, some genocide in Africa. I think, this is just my opinion, but I think the Chinese have taken 
the American approach to telling their story, right? Americans have a way of telling their story that is, America is the best, it's so beautiful, nothing's ever gone bad, we're going to save the world, right? And I think the Chinese have taken it on, you know, because this book talks about their history, how bad it was. And at the same time, that for me, this is one of the themes, which was uh, totalitarianism. I don't, I'm totally master of that. You have this, you know, China, which is a totalitarian government completely, which it still is, right? And but they have changed, right? And they're not afraid to tell the history anymore. But they tell it in a way where it's like we have changed. We're not like this anymore, you know. Just like the United States, which in the United States has changed. And I think up until the uh, 60s, I think it was very bad for a lot of people, um, especially the people of color in the United States. Uh, segregation, Jim Crow. I mean, those were mob mentalities. People were getting lynched, you know. So I think the story, they, they know what they're doing. And the same thing with the movie I saw, you know. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, you know the movie on Netflix and the Chinese movie. The Wandering Earth. Yes, the one on Earth, which I saw last week, which I loved. But they had that feeling where, you know, China saves the world, saves, you know, saves the United States, you know, and saves the whole world, you know what I mean? And that's just like all the movies I grew up with, you know, me being a foreigner, I, I can kind of separate myself from this, you know, and I can look at it and say, my God, you know, all the movies I grew up with was United States saving the world. I mean, from everything, I, you know, so that's my little bit. Yeah, thanks. And yeah, the Wondering Earth is a movie based on a short story by the author, Liu Sushin, who wrote The Brighty Problem, but also wrote the short story that was The Wandering Earth was based off of the yeah. movie. All right. Maureen, do you have a favorite passage? I do. My favorite passage comes right when uh, Yi Wenji is in the Red Coast base and she is getting accustomed to her new life um, and it says in peace what had been suppressed by anxiety and fear began to reawaken ye found that the real pain had just begun nightmarish memories like embers coming back to life burned more and more fiercely searing her heart for most people perhaps time would have gradually healed these wounds after all during the cultural revolution many people suffered fates similar to her and compared to many of them, Yi was relatively fortunate. But Yi had the mental habits of a scientist, and she refused to forget. Rather, she looked with a rational gaze on the madness and the hatred that had harmed her. And that is my favorite passage because I just found this character, you know, we're introduced to her for the second time when she's in old age, and she's so kind, and she's so loving and she seems like she has so much serenity and i was like how does somebody who grew up in how we were introduced to her in the book how did she get from there to you know being this loving grandmotherly type and then and i was like wow this is amazing i really need to know more about this woman and then we end up getting her whole story and the the phases that she went through 
you know, she did have those moments where she just wasn't able to forget, to forgive and forget. And, you know, is that something that you can forgive and forget? And if you can't, is that okay? Like, I absolutely loved this character. She was intoxicating to me. Was she a good guy or a bad guy? She was a human. To me, she was just a human. She she was, I think, her story was definitely the most moving story for me. And her story was the one complete story they gave. The other characters, we don't get near as much background or depth or backlog. And even sort of the point of view character that we spend the most time with, Wang Yao, we, we don't have much on him. We know he's a nanotech guy and he kind of got involved because Dasha and the various folks who wanted to investigate the ETO kind of sucked him in to kind of become a mole in the ETO for their purposes. And he was an industry guy, but we don't really hear, we don't know his story. Yeah, Winja, the opera goes deep. The one cool thing about Wang Miao was I didn't know if he was going to be a double agent for the ETO. And I don't think he knew either. And that, that was interesting. Are you talking specifically about the part where he's at dinner with Pan Han and he says, you know, who do you agree with, the journalist or the the guys that think that these are going to save us? And he yeah. and he yeah, he says something along the lines of like, I knew that I'm this was them. the only safe answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And like, I'm with them. And he also said that when Jay and Dashi were like the only thing that kept him going. And obviously, they couldn't have been more different characters, right? Dashi was the id, just smoking and drinking and cursing and gambling, you know? And then all you the have... All the good stuff. All the good stuff, but also, like, some really good down, down-to-earth down wisdom and, and clarity. And then you had, on the other end of the spectrum, this super-intelligent, sophisticated, damaged person who we know is a two-time murderer and communicator with the Trisolarians, and leader of the ETO, at least titular leader. Let's talk about some sci-fi stuff. We're talking about cell phones. We've talked about the countdown they could do, etc. So let's talk about the virtual reality game. We're not quite there yet, I think, in our technology to have virtual reality games with body suits and so forth that really give you the experience of being there and and having your real-time thought and actions show up and interact with people. But I feel like technology is getting kind of close. There were several scenes in the book where Wang Miao goes into the virtual reality game, Three Body. And there were several scenes. Did anybody have a favorite scene? All of them. <laughs> yeah. I know that's such a cop-out answer, but they, it was so... I loved the giant pendulums. I loved the pyramids. I loved the desert. I loved that it changed when he changed his name. But I think like what really struck home for me about all of that was it, and this is the thing that I wasn't clear about, is did the Sophons make the game? Like who made the game? Because it was either the Sophons with actual knowledge of Trisolaris or it was Humans. The Redemptionists. Yeah, the, the Redemptionists. Redemptionists. And if they made it, they made the whole thing up. Which, like, that's amazing to me. Amazing. I think it. The I think the book said they that the Redemptionists made it with the Trisolarian technology as a recruiting tool. I thought the Redemptionists used it to recruit, but it didn't directly say. The, the redemptionists had made it. But I could be wrong. 
So I, I don't know. I don't know either. It was definitely a step above, I think, what humans could do. So I, I would be surprised if the soft cell phones had something to do with it. I, th- I think I had, I love the video game scenes. I they're fascinating. That's where, to me, a lot of the action uh, took place in, in the different ways that uh, Trisolaris is destroyed at the end of each one of the visits. It's really cool. And the way the author described it, it's going to make for, for fun times. I think my favorite scene was the one where Newton is there and it's the tri-solar syzygy where the three suns end up lining up in a straight line. And this is where the, they use like, I don't know how many people, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people to make a human computer. It was just yeah, so millions. That was pretty cool. So fascinating. You could, and you could see it actually kind of happening. I mean, why not? Raising flags. You raise the white flag, the black flag, or what have you. And it was just fascinating and somehow believable that you could make a human computer that way. That's probably been done. I don't know. A serious question, folks. Do you want to be able to dehydrate, be rolled up and stored away for better times? Lou? No. 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 No? Lou, no, you don't. Okay, Jack, no. no? No, no. Maureen? Can I, can I roll back time to when I was 23? Because <laughs> okay. if I'm, yeah, if I'm, I would like to roll back to 23 me. That would be fine. If that means <laughs> come back again and again and again, hell yeah, if I would dehydrating. 40, 41 year old me, not too excited about it. <laughs> well, I don't think the dehydrating technique. The capability the Trisolarians had made them younger. In oh. fact, you probably aged because, like, sometimes dust collected on you or rats chewed on you. But you it know, might be a exfoliant. The dust is an exfoliant. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. I don't know if I want to be dehydratable either. It just sounds so miserable, and you're so vulnerable when you're dehydrated. You're rolled up like a sack and put on a shelf. I don't know. I don't know. Dehydrate. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. So if, if, if you could be in a video game, Maureen, what video game would you want to be able to visit? And this is a video game you could pop in and out of. And if like you die in a video game, you don't die in your life. It's just, you know. Skyrim. Skyrim. I love that game. I will play it all day. Like as long as I can avoid the bears and the dragons, like I love, I love me some Skyrim. I, I think I spent an hour once just jumping off a waterfall. <laughs> well, give, give me the 15 seconds on Skyrim. I don't know. Give us okay. So it is a RPG game that takes place in a Nordic setting and there are dragons and it is wonderful. I love okay. that you can pick your own characters in that and design yeah. your own characters. Yeah. Harry Who's plays it, that is, is that the game that is Skyrim the game that you would want to be able to go in and out of? No. The game I would want to be on is Anthem. And I'm not I'm not a video game player, okay? Uh, what my first pick would be FIFA. <laughs> That's chosen way I FIFA ninety six. <laughs> you can pick FIFA. You can pick FIFA ninety six. FIFA what, 96. What player would you be? That's my, that's, that was my game. Or would but you be that, yourself? I'll be myself. You can, you know, um, but back then, I don't know who I was. I don't really remember, but now I would be messy, of course, you know, cause I have, I have FIFA 18, which I rarely play. I would be, uh, messy. Barcelona is one of my favorite teams. So that's what I would be. Uh, but Harry plays Skyrim all the time. But he bought this book, he bought this game, Anthem, and you can fly in it. 
you know? So I would love to get stuck in that. And it's a good story, too. Jackie, I've only games? played... Yeah, I'm not much of a video game guy. I have played three video games. I played Gauntlet. I went to the mall every Thursday with you, Josh, and a couple of the guys. And Gauntlet's a, a four-player game. We would hit up the food court and get the etouffee chicken from Cajun from the Cajun kitchen. I would get the etouffee chicken. And then we'd play Gauntlet. And we would each get a roll of quarters because you could feed the the thing if you were starting to die. And I would definitely go with that because it just brings back happy memories of being 17 in the mall. Okay, would you be the elf, the Valkyrie, the warrior, or the wizard? I, I might interchange because they all have their strengths and weaknesses. It's a tough call. So Probably the other one. two games I, I played, I defeated Zelda on Nintendo. It took like a week, you know, of like no sleeping. And then I played a like Mortal Kombat game for one weekend. And that is the entirety of my video game experience. And of the three... I would go with Yellow Wizard Shop of Food. Mm. All right. Nice. Nice. Um, I uh, have fond memories of that. Thanks for bringing it up. I think I'm going to go with the, for me, I just want to be stuck in a first-person shooter. It could be Halo. It could be Call of Duty. It could be one of those. And I just want to, like, go around and be that kind of game, adventure, dodging things, all that kind of stuff. I think because for me, if I could jump into a video game, it would be for total pure escapism. And that would be... uh Something that would be completely 100% totally engrossing. But what video game would be your nightmare to be in? I've only played three video games, so don't ask me. None of them sound like <laughs> nightmares. None of yours sound like nightmares. Zelda, Gauntlet, and Mortal Kombat. Silent yeah. Hill. Silent, Silent Hill. Hill. What's Silent Hill? Silent Hill is a horror game. It's another open world RPG horror game, and it is creepy it's creepy it's like these ghouls from an insane asylum take over this place and it's all misty and everything looks weird and it's just gross it's gross yeah it sounds horrible but mine's worse i think it's okay yeah it's a game from it's a game from the 80s and it's a game where you're living on the edge the entire time you have these strange monsters trying to get you your movement is highly, highly limited, and you're basically facing the abyss at almost any turn if you get cornered. It was called Qbert. <laughs> oh. just, it's just you just fall off the edge at any moment, and the monsters could corner you, and there's nowhere to go. And once you get cornered, you're cornered, you're done. And and it's and there's only like four sounds in the video game. And one of them is when you're jumping from from cube to cube. And then the, the sound the monsters make, and the sound that's made when you fall off the edge, and I would hit, that would be my nightmare. So this is where we put in a science consultant. Now I want to share a favorite passage, which is from one of the video game scenes in the book. It's one of the first video game scenes in the book. A column of soldiers shouted, "Rehydrate! Rehydrate!" as they ran toward a large stone building shaped like a granary next to the lake. On the road to Zhao Gi, Wang had seen many buildings like it, and King Wen had told him that these buildings were called dehydratories, warehouses where the dehydrated bodies could be stored. The soldiers opened the heavy stone doors of the dehydratory, carried out rolls of dusty skins. Each soldier walked to the lake shore and tossed them into the water. 
As soon as the skins touched the water, they began to unfurl and stretch out. Soon, the lake was covered by a layer of man-shaped floating skins, each rapidly absorbing the water and expanding. Gradually, all the man-shaped skin cutouts became fleshy bodies that gradually began to display signs of life. One by one, they strolled up out of the waist-deep water and stood up, looking around the sunny world with wide-open eyes. They appeared to have just woken from a dream. Rehydrate! One man cried out. Rehydrate! Rehydrate! Other voices joyously echoed his. Everyone climbed out of the lake and ran naked toward the dehydratory. They carried out more skins and tossed them into the water. And even more of the revived climbed out of the lake. The same scene repeated itself around every lake and pool. The entire world was coming back to life. Oh, heavens, my finger! Wong saw a man who had just been revived standing in the middle of the lake, holding up one hand and crying. The hand was missing its middle finger, and blood flowed from the wound into the water. Others who had just been revived passed him by as they happily waded the shore, ignoring him. Count yourself lucky, one of the men said. Some lost a whole arm or leg. Others had their heads chewed through by rats. But we hadn't been rehydrated in time. Maybe all of us would have been eaten by the chaotic era rats. How long have we been dehydrated? One of the revived asked. You can tell by looking at the thickness of the dust covering the palace. I just heard that the king is no longer the king from before, but I don't know if he's the old king's son or grandson. This whole idea of being dehydrated is pretty wacky. <laughs> well, it's that time in the episode for us to have a word from our sponsor. And when we return, we'll do Hollywood. This episode is brought to you by Blunderbore Outfitters. Blunderbore Outfitters. Practical gear and apparel for giants. The only outfitter exclusively for giants. Blunderbore is really onto something, folks. I, I tell you, I'm an average size guy, and I get frustrated with the, the way clothes can fit. You know, it can be frustrating for me, and I'm like an average size guy. You know, I my shoulders are a little big, so sometimes it's like the armpit holes and shirts, especially trendy shirts. They like are too small for me. Skinny jeans can be like tight on my calves, you know. I, I just can't imagine what it's like to shop for clothing and other gear if you're a giant. It's got to be brutal. Well, happy to report it's not brutal anymore. Blunderbore Outfitters has all the gear a giant could ever need. Massive shirts, ginormous hats, gigantic trousers, colossal belts, huge socks and shoes, in downright elephantin overcoats. That's right, elephantin. I don't even know how to say that, but that's what their the read they gave me says. All for a price you can afford. It won't cost you a golden egg. High quality craftsmanship for a good price. How cool is that? The Blunderbore brothers, Mongo and Tabart, know what giants need because they are giants. Their dad, Gog Magog Blunderbore, started Blunderbore Outfitters back in 1994 with a simple vision. Giant clothes made for giants by giants that won't cost you a golden egg. For a limited time only, Blunderbore and Books from Earth are teaming up for a special exclusive offer. You get their best-selling Spriggan's Shin Guards on your next purchase of $100 or more if you enter our code at checkout. The Spriggan's Shin Guard, a stylish piece of protective gear worn on the front of a giant's shins. It is designed to protect giants from injury in battle against human or for that size, uh, for that matter, trisolarian-sized combatants. Perfect for the giant or giantess who wants to play soccer, play catcher, play cricket, or just engage in some anxiety-free stomping. You know, as a human, I only go up to a little bit past a giant's knees. That doesn't sound great to me. 
Don't let your shins get injured in battle. Throw on a pair of spriggans. Spriggans, they're just big-ass shin guards. Blunderbore offers a lot more than clothes and shin guards. They have all the gear every giant needs. Use our code at checkout on your next purchase of $100 or more, and Blunderbore will throw in a free pair of Spriggan's shin guards, an essential in every giant's wardrobe. Check them out on the web at www.booksfromearth.com backslash Blunderbore. That's B-L-U-N-D-E-R-B-O-R-E, and enter our code at checkout. That's B-F-E for a free pair of shin guards when you spend $100 or more. Tell them Books from Earth sent you. Blunderbore Outfitters. Giant clothes made for giants by giants. Now, back to the pod. Welcome to Hollywood. Here we are, Jack, Blue, Maureen, back in our Hollywood offices, imagining what is this going to be like when we convert this novel, perhaps a trilogy. Maybe there's additional books that come out, too. What are we going to do with this? First of all, I had some good news. Casting has already been taken care of by a Chinese firm who uh, has basically already lined up some of the biggest names in Chinese Hollywood. Uh, the guy from Detect- the Detective D series, um, he's like megastar there right now. He's already agreed to be uh, in the movie. So we're going to we're gonna skip casting, but we still need to figure out, what is this? Is this a movie? Is this a TV series? Is this a trilogy? What do we want to do? I want to do a big Hollywood blockbuster. Like, just straight up. There's so many visuals in this um, book that I just, like, I want to see it on the big screen. And then on top of that, there is so much depth to it that I really want to see some actors sink their teeth into into stuff. Like, the woman who's going to play um, Yuenji. Like, I want to see her sink her teeth into that whole character development that she's got. So my vote would be for a movie just because I want the incredible, like, stunning visuals of Trisolaris. I want to see, like, that's the human supercomputer. I want to see all of that, but also, like, be able to have those really intimate moments where she, like, decides to send the message out saying, come get us, we're terrible. Yeah, I. so we're thinking um, maybe one movie per book? Yeah, one movie per, per book in my, in my Hollywood, in my Hollywood. Yeah, I'm down for that. I do think that um, this is going to make a, probably a better movie than a TV series because we do, I do think the big screen will be awesome. Any 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 anybody disagree? We Definitely. this is our team project. Definitely I agree. I, I'm okay. down for that. I have one adjustment I'd like to propose. Kick it. When you're in the video, it should be look. It should look like manja. Oh. Or, yeah. Yeah, you know the way they do like graphic novels, right? And the virtual reality game, the three body. You're in, yeah. When you're in three body, it should be manja, but it should look very close to how like Wang Miao should. It should be clearly Wang Miao, but I think it should be like kind of manja. Or when I was growing up, there was a cartoon Speed Racer. Yes, you know, that, that was manja esque. <laughs> I'm picturing that. Yeah, sort of the anime manga esque type. Yeah, that's that would be a great twist. The CGI capabilities, etc., to make the video game world like in Ready Player One has kind of already been done. They did a great job with it. 
So I think the Monte twist would be good. I like that. Okay, we'll work on that. We'll get our artist working on that. Yeah, let's storyboard it. Cultural revolution. Do we do we just gloss that, or do we make it something central to the movie? I would say I like I feel I would feel obligated to include it. Like I don't know that it's going to be the same story if you don't get the history of where all of these people are coming from and being able to sign on. And just the depth of despair and loss of faith in humanity. Like, I think that we would need that to set up the base for, well, why would you become a traitor to your to the entire human race? Yeah, it's got to be included. It doesn't have to be included. I don't think I want to make the movie a commentary on the Cultural Revolution. Um, but I want it, I want the brutality of it, the tragedy of it to be upfront and communicated. And yeah, I want, I want the actress, yeah, who plays Yawunja and her lines to absolutely be reflective of that background that she experienced. Do we want to do the, you know, the scene in the book where the Judgment Day boat gets nano sliced? Oh, hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was amazing. Like the, I liked the descriptions of the sounds. Like he got everything, smells, sounds. He had the whole, all of it going on. It was great. Yeah, that's one of the most graphic descriptions of the novel. It's great. Uh, what are you doing? Are we doing PG, PG thirteen R. What What do you want to do? I would say PG thirteen at the very least, just because we need to kind of get the brutality of the Cultural Revolution across, but also give us some wiggle room in case some more severe stuff comes down the line with the next two books in the trilogy. Good point. Yeah, I think it, like minimal PG thirteen. Maybe as we storyboard out the other two books. I I would want to make it R, but I think we have to make it PG-13 to widen the scope of the audience. Yeah, and the, the manga anime and stuff will, you know, be, be great for a younger audience, too, to expose them to that, and I can see them really being into it. There was some brutal violence, you know. The Cultural Revolution was pretty brutal, you know, so I think I would keep it at R just because there's some major violence in it. Well, yeah, we have to pull to some money. bunches. If we're <laughs> trying to make money, it's PG-13. But if we're trying to make quality, it's R. If everyone in China wants to see the movie, that's enough people we could go R. <laughs> <laughs> True. Will, but are we it. doing our service in getting the math to the masses? we got to get the math to the masses. <laughs> the math would be severely minimized in my version. Of Not in your version. <laughs> no. No. Well, maybe in your version, but not in my version. It would be the send. It would be its own character. <laughs> Josh's face palming. <laughs> I'm just removing that. I remember that movie uh, with Russell Crowe, Beautiful Mind, about Nash, John Nash. That was more. That was more of a character movie. If they had made it about the math, I don't know. Didn't it really count award? Yeah, yeah, I'm missing yeah, out. Okay, well, okay. We'll, we'll have to figure out what to do with the math, Maureen. I don't know. Might be a fight here in the producer's room. Uh, but we got time. What makes this book special? I'm going to go first. I, what was special to me was that it was like four different stories interweaving, four different books interweaving. There's a story of Yeah, Winja and the Cultural Revolution, deep human experience. There was this hardcore sci-fi of Trisolarians with Sophons manipulating the Earth and getting ready to invade us. There was the detective story with Dasha and Long Miao, 
who are trying to figure out why scientists are dying and they infiltrate fifth column movement. And then there's the whole video game scenes where it's just absolutely ridiculous and wonderful. That's what makes the book special for me. Lou, what made this book special for you? Just the whole scope of the book, you know, the, the vastness of it and everything that it had me questioning science, religion, my intelligence, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <I do. laughs> you know, um, you know, the whole trying to save the world thing. And I, you know, I was just kind of like had me questioning a lot of things, you know, including faith too. And how it was used to justify how this Tricerians were using faith to justify invasion, invade, invading earth, you know. That was really astonishing to me, too. You know, saying, like, oh, there was so much to this book. I definitely want to read the rest of the books. You know, I, li- I liked it a lot. I'm glad you mentioned the Trisolarian's motivation because, in a way, this is a land grab. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Jack, what makes this book special? For me, it's what would – it's a fun thing to think about if I knew – the Earth would be destroyed by aliens in 450 years, and so did everyone else. And there's probably nothing we could do about it. What would it be like? What would it, I don't want to go there. I've got kids. I've talked about it probably on every podcast. They're okay. Their kids are okay. The generations, how many generations is that? I don't know. Does it change the way you see things? How? But is a bunch of shit that feels important to me suddenly not important to me anymore? I don't know. Is it constricting what happens to society? I look forward to reading the next two books, and I hope that – and I've, I've started the second one, but I hope that he goes into that and makes that a big part of the focus because I just find it a unique first contact spin, and I want to I know more. Maureen, what makes this book special for you? Well, this is probably – my favorite book that we've read so far. And like, I just keep thinking back was it to the, the fractions. First... Was it the yes! fractions? <laughs> yes. It was the differential calculus. I remembered reading a wrinkle in time for the first time and my mind opening up and realizing that there is a whole world of possibilities out there that I didn't know. Reading the three body problem. I felt that again. I found myself researching the cultural revolution. I found myself researching, you know, the three body problem. I found myself researching gravity assists and, and just going down a whole bunch of wiki holes. And it was beautiful characterization. It was an infinite world of possibilities. It was creative. It was like Lou said, it was vast. And I absolutely loved this book. Tesseracts. <laughs> an elegant idea absolutely this yeah. is like wrinkle in time for adults yeah awesome. it is episode 7 featuring the three body problem by Liu Tixian has come to an end we'd like to thank Blunderbore Outfitters whose generous funding made this episode possible Blunderbore Outfitters practical gear and apparel for giants the only outfitter exclusively for giants you can find more information about Blunderbore Outfitters at booksfromearth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, rate us, or visit our website, booksfromearth.com. Earth makes great books. Come relive them with us. So long until next time. This is Josh, Maureen, Jack, and Lou signing off.
Fantastic. Okay, cool. How, how now, brown cow? How now, brown cow? <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop recording. Okay. Good night. Um, so I think it's called hard science fiction because there is a whole lot of... We can hear you eating, Josh. <laughs> um, how it becomes part of our... What is all the background noise, guys? <laughs> Not me. No, all right. I'm on mute. <laughs> Y'all are killing me I'm here. On You're killing me. I will go back to the top again. I want to record the intro separately from the other pieces or just do it all? Do it all in one and then I can just cut and paste. Make it easy. Oh, I need for you to show me how to paste things in. I don't know how. Oh! Cut and paste is my so favorite. So we maybe we can do it with this recording. I don't know. Yeah, perfect. Let's do okay. it. record the intro separately from the other pieces or just do it all do it all in one and then i can just cut and paste make it easy oh i need for you to show me how to paste things in i don't know how oh cut and paste is my so favorite. we can maybe we can do it with this recording i don't know yeah perfect let's do okay. it all right here we go <laughs>